0: This talk is the one on caring for trafficked people in low-resourced settings, and um, I want to give you a little bit of background that Christian Medical and Dental Association has been very interested in working in this area and has put together a task force on TIP. It's called the TIP Task Force. TIP is the word you'll frequently see in the literature for trafficking in persons, and there are four of us on that task force, uh, myself, Jeff Barrows, uh, Catherine Welch, who's also speaking this hour, and Clyde Powell, who has spoken on trafficking here, Jeff speaking next hour. So um, we have put together 11 modules to train healthcare providers on continuing medical and dental education, And as we speak, it is going up online. It's an online course through CMDA on their website. This is one of our modules. The the lecture is altered, some from the annual actual module because we're talking rather than you reading and studying it. Um, But I wanted to give credit to the fact that this is a joint module that Catherine Welch and I did together. So uh, there's information coming from both of us that you'll see. On this module, but if you're really interested in trafficking, that's another good resource for you. And (coughs) three of the modules (coughs) will probably be up within the month, but most of them are on right now. So, um, when we're talking about low resource settings, um, (coughs) there's a lot of areas that have not got the resources that we have here in the United States. And what I'm going to do first is give you an overview about low resource countries and working with the trafficking problems. And then I'm going to give you some specifics about some medical illustrations of what you can do with uh, more limited equipment and supplies. But as much as, uh, you know, operating rooms, it's fine. In Africa, it's hard to find a lot of laparoscopic surgery. Uh, because the equipment isn't there. You certainly won't find the robotic surgery that's being offered in the United States. You often find very little tools with which to work. On a macro level in those countries, that's true in having all sorts of social support and political support for trafficked women also. And before I get into just low-traffic countries, I have to also just make a parenthetical statement comment to you that we have a lot of low-resource areas still in the United States. (coughs) Trafficking is a big problem here. People are getting more and more interested and are learning more about it, but we still have a lot of holes in the system. An adolescent girl who is rescued from trafficking here in this country, it's very hard to be able to get her and find a shelter that she can go into. The police may put her in jail thinking that that's the safest place for her to be, and that definitely does not solve the problem. So we have low resources, too, but we're going to concentrate in this talk on low-resource countries. So you can see here that besides medical and uh, services, um, they also lack all sorts of comprehensive services and um, advocacy uh, in survivor-centered programs and procedures, and there's still a lot of political issues that interfere. Um, For example, in a lot of the countries, the um, young girls, the virgins, they're often saved for the police and for the government officials to use. So there's a lot that's going on in a very dark and sordid area in these countries, and you don't find the resources to meet these people's needs. I'm going to give you several examples during this talk. And the first one I want to start with is an uh, example is Fay. <coughs> to point out at, that although most of the trafficking we're talking about is sex trafficking, and most of the victims we're talking about are women, there are lots of different kind of trafficking. And labor trafficking is one of them, and one we see here in the United States. Spey was a 22-year-old Cambodian man. Uh, impoverished, needing a job, and he found a job, what he thought was a good job working on a fishing vessel. He got on this boat uh, for two and a half years. He never got paid. He had very poor living conditions. Um, He was basically enslaved on this fishing boat, and after about two and a half years, it made its way over to South Africa, where it was impounded uh, for illegal fishing. So he winds up in South Africa. Now the problem is the Cambodian government has no official status in South Africa. So Sve is sitting there, um, and they don't know what to do with him. They don't know how to send him back to his country, who would pay for it if he went back. So he's got no medical care. He's got no legal representation. He's got no social work advocacy. He has no papers, so he can't get a job. Um, <clears throat> both to the Cambodian government and the South African government, he does not exist. And that often is a problem for trafficked people, especially that have been trafficked across borders, and their papers are taken from them. And so there, they're just a lot of people that their needs are not being met. So the principal ways to address trafficking in persons really are the same universally. And those are these points which we're going to go through. Advocacy and awareness, prevention, outreach and identification, survivor-centered approach in providing legal, medical, and social services, and then giving them both the short-term immediate care they need when they're rescued and come out of trafficking and the long-term follow-up for that. When you're talking about awareness and advocacy, part of that will get you into prevention. There's actually, if you went up to a woman being sold in the brothels and kept under lock and key and being beaten and starved because she didn't meet her 40-client-a-day you know, um, quota, and you asked her if she was being trafficked, she wouldn't know what you were talking about. Many trafficking victims don't know what human trafficking is. They don't know um, how it happens. They don't know that they have any. They don't know that all over the world trafficking is illegal, and they have some rights. Um, you have to start for awa- getting awareness in populations to um, both prevent trafficking. I've, I've talked to church groups and kids here about some of the Internet sexting and getting on chat sites and meeting strangers and things that they get into. I mean, there's so much. They are unaware of how dangerous the issue is. And as you, if you hear Dr. Barrows later, he'll talk about adolescent trafficking in this country is their biggest form of trafficking. I mean, people just don't know. They think someone comes up and offers them a wonderful job um, as a waitress or making money where their family can't even feed them. They think this is fabulous. They go, they get locked in the back of a truck, their papers are taken away, they wind up in a brothel, and they, they have no choice of what they do. So education to prevent. But besides preventing, increase awareness so you can reintegrate them and get them out of trafficking and back into their communities. And all of these things are going to be very specific to the area that you work in. And how you're going to find out is by networking. And counter-trafficking efforts overlap with a lot of other things going on. There are programs in many low-resource areas for children at risk, for example. Um, There's community development programs, child protection advocates, disaster relief agencies, If you're overseas in one of these areas, start talking, and just ask around, and you will find out where your resources are that have already penetrated these neighborhoods, who've already made connections, who have some contacts with government and social agencies, and can help you (coughs) get a role and get things started. It's a good way to learn from each other and um, to work together. Many, many places, as you can see listed here, there are regional networks dealing with trafficked people. So um, for example, these, these are mostly Asian ones. ICAP International Co- Coalition about Prostitution is all over the world. They're in South America, they're in North America, they're everywhere. <coughs> Excuse me, there's many, many more, but there are a lot of resources that you can network in. All right, let's besides awareness, let's go a little more into prevention. This is really your most important issue, and it's the least resource demanding. It's the easiest thing that you can do. But you need to address the risk factors that are specific to your region. For example, in northern Thailand, many people are – their risk factor to being trafficked was they lacked citizenship. They didn't have, you know, papers or whatever, and they're more prone to be trafficked. The – One of the huge factors behind trafficking is poverty. If a woman can't feed her family, she may sell her daughter to get food to feed her sons. Um, Poverty is a huge issue. Employment, finding jobs, education, education for girls and women. These are the kinds of things that that can be done to prevent um, trafficking. And education in health things is something that you as a health care provider can be involved in. Um, many trafficked women are illiterate. They have never been to school. That's part of their risk factors and so basic health education. For example, when um, I'm down at a trafficking rescue shelter in Nicaragua, we have uh, nurses teach them hand-washing. The dentists teach them about brushing their teeth. Girls often have no idea about reproductive function and how this all works. They don't know about contraception. They don't know about a lot of these things. And as a healthcare provider, <coughs> in very simple ways, you can set up, teach them about STD prevention, <laughs> uh, many health issues. Here's an example, here are some examples of topics and I put at the bottom this Health Education Program for Developing Countries handbook. That's a free download on the web, and in fact, I have it downloaded in Spanish for working in Nicaragua. And it gives um, it, it gives you how to how to teach and handouts and pictures to use. So that's an excellent prevention method. Okay, after prevention, now what about the people that are already in trafficking? And we need to get to outreach and identification. And I've mentioned already, you need to partner with high-risk, with groups that are dealing with at-risk people. (coughs) And you need to be available. So many, let me say that a little differently, a lot of the, the research and the thinking that have been done have shown that health care is critical, a critical step in dealing with people who have been trafficked or are being trafficked and getting them out of there. It's an essential component. But many of them have started up as either legal or social services. If you are working overseas and you are in an area and you just say, you know, I'd be happy to do some physicals for you on trafficked women, they would be delighted or do anything to help them provide health care. Just find organizations, partner with them, and make yourself available. You also have to go there. You can say, well, in my clinic, I know I'd be happy to see people who are trafficked. They probably aren't going to come to your clinic. You may have to go into the brothel with, in safety with people who work there and know how to do it. But you have to be, be available uh, to them where they're at. Um, you can also help a lot by training providers of aftercare services in low-resource settings. That You will find the people that work in these shelters, they need to know how to do first aid to do basic healthcare programs. We've put together a healthcare, basic healthcare kit of medications and supplies that they should have to deal with everyday healthcare needs, because some of them don't get any healthcare um, after they've come to these shelters. We talk to them on uh, nutrition, on diet. Huge huge issues for them when they've never really eaten well. And you can also address some of the issues that come out of it, like um, child abuse issues, and talk about child protection and and what to do. So you can train the trainers that are working in this area as as a medical professional. Now, if we switch over to... Um, talking about the medical problems that you're going to see. Um, There are many programmatic restraints you run into in low-resource settings with dealing with health care. There's often no uniform practice of care. Um, You know, we have standards of care everywhere. That doesn't necessarily exist in some other low-resource areas. Uh, There's no way to set up a referral if someone need something more than they can be given there. There, It's not based on uh, trauma, and these people undergo a lot of physical trauma, or on victim-centered approaches, which is empowering them and not victimizing them further, making them do things or submit to things in an exam they may not want. You have to start empowering them and giving them a different mentality. You work with the gentleness. They need to see the love of Jesus in your eyes, not the way it often can be for them. Um, They have very little – let me get back to this one. They have um, governments – it's not that they don't care about trafficking, but they don't prioritize medical needs of survivors in any way because of their other issues. They have a lot of budgetary restraints and lack of political will – (coughs) <coughs> the U.S. government has been putting a lot of pressure on <coughs> other countries receiving aid, looking at how they are addressing trafficking in their countries. But on a on a micro level, that doesn't necessarily have an impact on these people being able to get uh, care. Um, and their their focus often is on prosecution, um, getting the guys who did this, but not necessarily rehab for the people coming out of trafficking. Um, The health professionals that are dealing with it in these low-resource countries often don't have uh, appropriate training. Um, They can't get laboratory tests. They can't get other diagnostic tests. They don't have a good infrastructure. um, You can't get follow-up with patients. You're working behind the eight ball when you work in these uh, situations. So it's important that we find ways to um, get an integrated response for trafficked people. And I mentioned to you before people starting to recognize the importance of health care in trafficking. And so healthcare care workers need to be involved in setting policy, in setting up health service, setting up protocols for how victims should be dealt with, mental health services, prevention services, community education services. Um, speaking of mental health services, this is a huge trauma to people. These are people who have been told basically they're of no worth. These are people who have not been any social, any functional family unit of how a father or a mother should work. They're, they're pretty hopeless in the way they've been treated. And mental health issues are used, PTSD, PTSD. Uh, anxiety, drug abuse, eating disorders, in many low-resource countries, it's really hard to find any mental health services. They just don't exist. And if there are any, they're really poor. For uh, example, Catherine had put on about a psychiatric colleague in Thailand. He has to see 40 to 50 clients a day, and that's only going to be in the big city. So the level and intensity that these people need are, are not going to be available So one of the things you need to look at is for counseling, there are several different kinds of counseling methods that work for trafficked people. And um, you need to find out what's available in that area and what's been used successfully for them. You have to know, you have to hunt the bushes and try to find if there's any local counselors you can work with. And again, that's where the networking comes in because they may be working in a, child abuse protection program, but they also could work with these women. Medication is really often very helpful dealing with bad depression or addiction or anxiety or some of these other issues. But you have to offer to provide medical supervision. You can't go to a rescue shelter and say, I'll leave you a hundred Prozac here. You know, give them to your people if you find that they need them or I'll leave you these sleeping pills. Or in many of these low-resource countries, you can just go to pharmacy and buy antipsychotic medication over-the-counter if you want to. But you've got to have some medical input um, before you can do that. So you also have to remember about mental health issues being heavily influenced by the culture. Did many of you in school read the book, The Spirit Catches You and Then You Fall Down?, any of you know that book? It's a great book. Um, the Spirit Catches You and Then You Fall Down. It's actually a case that took place in California. I, th- I think everybody in medical uh, circles should read that book. It's a case that happened in California of uh, allow uh, immigrants who um, had a child who developed seizure uh, seizure disorder. And the absolute mistreatment and miscommunication and total chaos that was caused in the interaction between the medical community and these people family because of culture. The medical people didn't understand the culture that they were coming from and why they did things the way they did it, and the family had no understanding of U.S. medical system and how it works, and it was an absolute catastrophe. In fact, the book, which is now probably 30 years old, the girl that this was written about just recently died. Um... That's an example, and that's here in the United States. You can imagine you, that's them in our big culture, which we understand the health system, system more. Put yourself as a health care provider there in a culture you know nothing about. Any missionary that's been on the field for any period of time can tell you horror stories because of that lack of understanding of culture. And so that's really important in dealing with these. And some... Cultures, they don't understand the concept of counseling. There just is not that concept available to them. So you have to be, first of all, you have to go as a learner and find out about their culture and find out what they do do there. And then you have to find local professionals to help guide you. We can't, you know, be the ugly American and go in and try to do it our way. It doesn't work. You have to work within the system because you'll just cause more problems than you help. A very important point on here is remember to care for the caregivers. And that includes yourself if you decide to start working with trafficked people because it's really hard. It is so hard to hear the stories, to know what these people have gone through and it wears you down. Because... It's also not a situation where someone who's been trafficked and they've been beaten and abused and starved and tortured, you suddenly they're freed and they're really thankful to you for that. They're messed up. They have come up with coping mechanisms to get them through these times that make it very unpleasant for you to often be working with them. So you really have to take care of yourself and take care of the people there. Because if you just idealistic say, I want to go in and work with trafficking and I'll head to Cambodia or India or Vietnam or somewhere where they have all these problems, you burn out very, very quickly. So that's important too when we're talking about mental health. And always remember, smiles, open ears and hearts can convey a lot of love and genuine concern. One of the dentists on one of our Nicaragua trips, (coughs) as we were sharing stories at night, he shared. He said, you know, I'm a guy and I can't go up and hug the girls the way you women can. And I can't talk, you know, I'm working in their mouth and we don't get time to sit and talk. And I just say to myself, Lord, please let them see the love of Jesus in my eyes. And that's, that's how he... Tries to break that through and minister to them. All right, remember healthcare basics. Basic is the operative word there. All contact with trafficked persons is a potential step to improving their health. Miracles don't often happen overnight. And so let's talk about what some of those problems are. Uh, a problem for trafficked people that you'll see in these countries is tuberculosis. Actually, you'll see it in trafficked people in this country. Um, and many of them come from high-risk countries where tuberculosis is very um, widespread. They may be trafficked in transit through a country for several months, kept in very crowded, unsanitary living conditions, close quarters, um, before they arrive somewhere like here or another country. So it's really important to know where they've where they've been, and they're in a lot of very high-risk conditions. They're crowded living conditions. Their nutrition is poor. They come in contact with TB. A lot of trafficked people develop HIV infection. HIV um, makes it very easy to contract tuberculosis. Remember, too, that um, besides the classic pulmonary TB symptoms that you can get, in low-resource countries where things go on for a longer time, You also think about extra-pulmonary TB, um, especially in children. They're more likely to get extra-pulmonary, but TB can be a great masquerader, and so you have to think about it. Um, TB is diagnosis. You just need sputum smears looked at under a microscope. uh, Three samples over two days is the standard. Often you can find that in a country that somewhere there is a lab that can look at sputum. That's not a real complicated test. might not be in your area, but you should be able to get a diagnosis made. And because of World Health Organization and USAID and many other groups, TB drugs are often free in public health clinics. If you learn your resources, you can get people free treatment. There's also a lot of places where there's private providers that, We'll sell TB drugs. TB drugs are often sold in markets or on the streets. So there usually is treatment available. One of the really important things is that you or someone you're working with as you set up a program to work with TB are a supporter of this patient. TB drugs take a long time for treatment. And TB drugs cause a lot of complications, and so if you just say, here, go take this pill three times a day for the next three months, and then it's not likely to happen. So you really, to get effective TB treatment programs, you have to get a support person to walk alongside of them during their treatments. How about HIV? Again, I was in, on an alley in uh, Mumbai in a slum in a brothel, And on the street we were on, just that one lane, there was a 70% HIV positive rate in the prostitutes who were working there, the trafficked women. Um, So depending where you are, it can be very high. But most places now, again, with World Health Organization, USAID, there are rapid test kits available. You often have to do patient education. We think of ourselves doing tests and procedures and writing prescriptions Patient education is so huge in illiterate areas or they're not going to let you do the test. I've been in many places in Africa where you have people wasting away dying and you talk to the people in the area and they say, we don't have any HIV here. Or you talk to a pastor in a church, oh, not in our church, we don't have any of that because there's a huge stigma associated with it. So you go up to somebody and say you want to test them for HIV, it's likely they're not going to let you test them for that unless you do some education. So that's real important. Counseling is critically important. Counseling is critically important if you get someone who is positive because they're going to be very, very frightened and find that things are very hopeless. Part of the HIV and issues in these countries, for example, is there are some feelings in... um, Especially some Asian countries where I'm aware of, I know of some places in Africa, there's a belief that if you have HIV and you have sex with aversion, you'll be cured. So the pickup rate is high for these trafficked people. Um, low technology. Low technologies is what we talk about for low resource areas. So what I'm saying, I was just catching up with somebody from Abu Dhabi. Um, who was there long-term, and I had just done some short-term things there. I first went there as a medical student. We, had, we could type blood. We could do a malaria screen. We could do a hematocrit, because we had one of those things, and, and a chest x-ray. That was it. Um, when I've done focus groups with some trafficked women about how we can best help them health-wise, they say, we need a CT scanner and an MRI. Well, they don't exist in a lot of these places. And if you put an MRI in some of these cities, it would blow out the power for the whole city, (laughs) and they couldn't run anything. So you're not going to be working with CT scanners and MRIs in a lot of these uh, places. Um, Low technology is basically technology that works at the lowest resource level of the healthcare system. And so those are the kinds of things we're going to be talking about that hopefully you'll have available to work in with an unsophisticated setting. So let me give you some examples, prefacing by the fact that I'm a gynecologist. And sexually transmitted, you know, when people are in a sex industry, they have a lot of gynecologic uh, types of illnesses. So that's, that's um, my best examples to try to give to you from experience. But if you're looking at sexually transmitted infections, you're not going to find PCR um, tests around or nucleic acid amplification tests. We've taken tests to um, Nicaragua, which are local on-site tests, and they don't work. I don't know if it's heat or I don't know what's wrong, but we'll treat, you know, we may treat 10 severe PIDs in a day and, and every one of 100 tests except for the control come back negative. So you often don't have testing available um, for these things. Um When it comes to things like HIV and TB, again, you may not have, you don't have what we have here. You're not going to do, you know, CD50 counts on your patients. So you have to know the protocols in the area that you're in. And last year I did a talk here on health care and people have been trafficked, and the fact that a lot of the diseases are seen much later than we would see in a general population, and I had some great slides up to see and see if you can diagnose these common things, but they were all so far advanced. We don't see tertiary syphilis, for example, that much in our training anymore, but you may see it uh, in people like this. Uh, We could talk about all those uh, so-called zebras, but a thing to remember is that most common conditions are common. People who are trafficked still get the same headaches and colds and backaches and everything else that we do. And fortunately, many of them are not difficult to diagnose and many of them are not difficult to treat or relatively inexpensive to treat. I mean, people recognize that they don't have access to aspirin. You know, the thing that, things that you would open your medicine cabinet to get... They don't have access to to those things. So um, this last point, I think, is the critical point on here. You might not be able to solve their underlying cause, but you can provide relief. And that's critical in medical care. It's critical for us as Christians. That's what we want to be doing. And just that you care and you're there and put your hands on and offer them something really goes a very long way. Um, some low-tech examples of healthcare: care, the old history and physical exam. You can always do that. <clears throat> I work with residents at our gynecology clinic who will come out and tell me about all the um, GYN symptoms a patient has, and, and I'll say, so what did you find on the pelvic exam? And they say, oh, I didn't do one. And we have gotten very used to relying on our CT scans and our MRIs. You can actually learn a lot from just your history and physical, and that can go with you anywhere. I'm also going to talk to you about two other specific examples where we treat things very differently than we do in the United States, and that's syndromic diagnosis um, and VIA and cryosurgery for treatment of precancerous lesions, because they're very specific to low-resource places, and they've been shown to be extremely effective. Just also remember... That like common conditions we mentioned had inexpensive treatments. Here's some examples anemia, malnutrition, parasites. Prenatal care is very, very important in pregnancy in reducing maternal mortality and neonatal death and morbidity. Um, treating headaches, all these things. So there's a lot you can do without a lot. Now, syndromic approach to um, here sexually transmitted infection management, but it's applied to many other things. It's a WHO endorsed protocol, and it's been used in many countries since the 70s. And the bottom line is, you can't do an exam, or you can't you can't get follow up testing done um, to confirm, you know, what this bacteria is that's causing the infection. But you can figure out that it's an infection that's causing it, and sort of know what the bacteria were and what they might be sensitive to, and you just find out what the problem is and you treat it. You, you have all the middle fixed where we would confirm things here, and we, we would never do that in this country. You have, this is being done, some syndromic approach with no laboratory testing. This is just an example using the sexually transmitted infections. They break it down into seven kinds of syndromes. So you can even, in areas, change, train non-physicians uh, to do this kind of thing. And it either is, you know, it falls in one of these areas, the lower abdominal pain, vaginal discharge, inguinal swellings, general ulcers, one of these. And then I'm just putting up an example of an algorithm just to show you how this, this uh, works. And you may not be able to read it from there. But, you know, is it associated... I can't, even, I can't read it online. Okay, someone comes in with a discharge. Um, is it associated with redness or any other genital disease? If it is, it takes you one way. Is it associated with pain, abdominal pain? If it's got abdominal pain, it takes you to a different flow sheet. Are you in an area where there's a high incidence of gonorrhea and chlamydia, like a trafficking population? Then you're going to be treating for gonorrhea and chlamydia and some other infections. So there are algorithms to help you figure out what to do, and it works pretty effectively. Um, I'll give you some examples, more examples of that later. Let me just give you some, tell you why this is helpful. First of all, if you haven't got any lab tests, you don't need any lab tests to do this. Uh, It reduces the cost and it gets more people treatment. It's very simple. All levels of the healthcare care system can use it. It promotes standardization. You can train people. Uh, it allows for immediate treatment, and this is critical. I can't tell you when we first tried to do some pap smears in Nicaragua and got an abnormal result, to try to find that lady later in the brothel and have her come back was next to impossible. First of all, we probably didn't even have her right name. Or you'll have a woman who's taken off a day to travel to the doctor and didn't work in the fields, which means her family isn't, her kids aren't going to eat that night. So she's not going to take off a second day to come back to you again. But if you can do something to see and treat while she's there, you're going to have a lot more success in getting a cure and a lot less consequences of the disease to follow. And you're going to decrease the period of time that disease is out there that it can be spread. Um, there are some problems with it. One is, for example, when you're talking about sexually transmitted infection, a lot of sexually transmitted infection, especially chlamydia, is asymptomatic. And you're going to miss that. You're going to just be treating people with syndromes. Um, if you can get to do, add a speculum exam in, and see a discharge, you're more likely to be able to do something. But that's not necessarily caused by a sexually transmitted infection. You also wind up treating people with more things than you probably need to be treated with. Some people will have chlamydia and gonorrhea, but some will just have chlamydia, and some will just have gonorrhea. And you don't know, so you have to treat them both. Um, So that becomes an issue. Um, Also, you need local data. You have to know about what's available in your regions. So those are a lot of the things that are wrong with syndromic treatment. That's why if you go in for your medical school exam and you tell them that's what you're going to do, you'll probably fail. But if you're in the third world and you have nothing else to do, this is going to be great. Um, This is the quote, in spite of its limitations, the syndromic approach is at present the most realistic option for the management of sexually transmitted infections and resource settings. I would never in my office have a woman come in and tell me about having a discharge and I just would sit there and look at her and say, okay, I'll prescribe this for you. But otherwise this discharge is not going to get treated and you can make a pretty good educated guess. Here's an example of a a case. Sumana is actually someone I saw. She's a 19-year-old woman who lives and works in the brothels of Mumbai. She comes to the clinic, which we actually sent up a tent in the middle of the street Um, complaining of a white vaginal discharge with no odor or itching. She denies pain or fever, her periods are regular, and as with every other trafficked woman we saw there, she did not use contraception. Her history was when she was 12 years old, a woman approached her parents in a rural poor area of Nepal with the promise of a good job in Kathmandu taking care of children. And so they sold Samana to her, um, Samana was drugged, put on a bus, she woke up in Mumbai, and she's been used in the brothels ever since then. On her physical exam, she had a very tender lower abdomen. She refused a speculum exam, as did many of these people. That's it. Through their clothes, you can touch them, and that was all that was going to Happened. Oh, I'm sorry. She did let us go on. She refused the speculum exam, but we did a bimanual exam. And she had cervical motion, tenderness and exit tenderness. And so we, I don't know what her white count was. I don't not know what her temperature was. I don't know what her culture, her wet mount, or any of that showed. But we treated her for PID. And this is what we treated her with, which was a standard uh, over there, and we probably, you know, we might have saved her from her tubes being forever damaged. We certainly, we may not have. We, may, we certainly saved her a lot of pain and further problems uh, with this, but we did it without having a lot of resources available. Cervical cancer in this group actually is something that I care about a lot because the first time I went to Nicaragua, a woman came in to see us and said, I'd like to have a pap smear done. Now, people don't usually ask for that. Ninety percent of people in Nicaragua will never have a pap smear done in their life. And I had to say to her, well, uh, we can't do that. You know, we haven't got a lab. We haven't got a pathologist. We don't have the funds to pay to get it read. I don't know how we get it back to you. I mean, just for many reasons, you couldn't do this. But 80 percent of cervical cancer in the world today occurs in low-resource settings. And this is your high-risk high group because... What are the risk factors for cervical cancer? Early onset of sexual activity, multiple sexual partners, other STIs. I mean, look at this list. Are we not speaking about sexually trafficked women in particular? So I'm not going to go through all of this. There's ways to prevent cervical cancer. Primarily, with primary prevention, you know, you can be monogamous, use condoms or several things to never get an HPV infection. But we mostly use secondary prevention because that's not going to happen. Other than in primary prevention, it's now HPV vaccine. This is a common question when I talk about this. What about HPV vaccine for this population? Yes, if you can do it, that's great. However, it's very expensive. Uh, It costs about $300 for the series. Obviously, that's not going to work. There are drug companies who make donations to low-resource countries, but the program will then allow you to charge $1 for the series of injections, yet because of the customs when it came in, the government paid, makes you're paying $3 per dose to pick up the vaccine. Then you have to find a place to refrigerate it. They have to come in for three injections, so they have to keep coming back. And the most critical thing is it's most effective when you give it before sexual activity has started. If you've already contracted HPV 16 or 18, the vaccine isn't going to work to block it because you already have it. So that doesn't work very well. So we're more into secondary prevention. And secondary prevention is because cervical cancer takes 10 to 12 years to develop from the time people contract HPV as a generalization. And there are intermediate stages it goes through of dysplasia that if you intervene and block any of that, that the cancer won't develop. Just like colonoscopy is not primary prevention. I mean, you can find polyps that are turning malignant and get them out before they do. It's the same thing you you can do here. Um, Most of these things don't work in low-resource areas. Pap smears, as I mentioned, Um, and one of the things that does work is visual inspection with acetic acid. It's very easy to do. All level of healthcare workers can use it. You get immediate results for supplies. You need some swabs and you need a bottle of vinegar that you pick up at the supermarket. You put vinegar on the cervix and you look at it and you see if it turns white or not. If it doesn't turn white, it's normal. If it tur- it's negative, if it turns white, it's positive, and it's got a fungating lesion on it, then it's ca- uh, suspicious for cancer. But you can come up with something right away while they're there, and it is the current recommendation for use in low-resource areas um, today for screening. And even if you can only screen once in a lifetime, it probably decreases your cancer rate about 25 or 30%. It's, uh, sensitivity and specificity is actually better than a pap smear, Um, And this is from a quote from Lancet. This has been around a long time, but gynecologists don't know about it in the United States. It's a proven simple means of identifying cervical intraepithelial neoplasia in developing countries. Okay, well, here we're going to talk about ROSA because it will take us into the next thing. I said, you know, see and treat them while you got them there because it's hard to get them back. Rosa's mother was a prostitute, and her clients began to use Rosa when she was seven years old. Now 31, she remains in the brothel, having never gone to school or job training. A prostitute friend tells her there's free medical clinic being held at a shelter, and she decides to come because she has frequent headaches. While she's registering, she's offered same-day testing and treatment, if necessary, to try to prevent cervical cancer. She's never thought about it, but she agrees because we brought it up. Her VIA was positive. It met the criteria. And we then did counseling and immediate cryosurgery on her and probably kept her from dying of cervical cancer someday. Cryotherapy is something you can use for immediate treatment when you see these lesions. Um, Cryotherapy guns are run with either carbon dioxide or nitrous oxide Every country has a Pepsi-Cola or Coca-Cola bottling plant where you can get liquid nitrogen. And I have a cryosurgery gun that fits in my suitcase. Have gun, will travel, for those of you that are old enough to remember that. So um, it's got very little complications. You don't need anesthetic. You don't need electricity. Um, It's a good thing to take with you. Um, It's done very quickly. And this is a large project that was done actually in Thailand, and they concluded that a single-visit approach is safe and a very good idea. So that's really what I want to tell you about about that. I just want to spend a couple minutes talking on short-term trips because many people will get impassioned about trafficking, which is what we're trying to do is raise awareness and get the information out. And what can we do? And for medical people, my thought is, hey, I'll go on a short-term trip for a couple months, and I'll help with this problem." Well, you might, or you might cause more trouble. So there's a couple guidelines I just want to mention. And um, one is that there are, is a need for short-term healthcare care trips. But it's important to be very careful in selecting where you're going. And you can't just jump on a plane and get off and say, here I am in Kabul. I'll work here for two weeks and help you with your trafficking problem. You want to be sure that you I – think, I think there's three, three things a short-term team can do medically with trafficking. One is you can deliver health care to a group of people who are underserved. You can also get new people to come to a program that has been set up in that country and is effective. But you can introduce them to it because you have a tool to bring them in. They may not come for the church service, but they'll come because you're delivering medical care and it's free to them. And also, it's for the people on your team that go. You go and God changes your life. You get educated and you find out the needs and your heart is broken where God's heart is broken. So it has an impact on the people that go. But you have to have realistic expectations. You're not going to abolish trafficking. You're not going to heal victims who have been rescued. Um, It's a very complex, holistic problem. And um, two quick examples. These are GHO trips that have been sponsored. First time we went to the brothels in Mumbai, partnered with a local organization, which was a good thing to do. Um, Medical and dental care was delivered for two weeks. In that two weeks, I wasn't the gynecologist on the trip, but this gynecologist wrote to me, in two weeks the women only let her do two, two pelvic exams. That's a lot of money to spend for a short-term trip for an uh, educated person who has a lot to offer and only do two pelvic exams. And they just wouldn't let her touch them, but she knew she was seeing PID and there was a lot of HIV everywhere. So we put our heads together. And the second trip, we went ahead. We talked to the team leader. We went a day ahead, and we sat down, and we had focus groups, and we talked the women about the cervical cancer and how it could be prevented and how we could find it with VIA and all of this. We just took a small group of 36 HIV positives, many with multidrug-resistant TV as our pilot group. 36 of the 36 agreed to be screened. They lined up for it. That's the difference that the education made. And we found two cancers, and we did a cryosurgery for precancerous lesion, and we did several biopsies on things. In Nicaragua, we've partnered with a local organization, deliver services at a rescue shelter, brought many new women in, introduced them to the services. Just this year, we do two one-week trips. We treated 3,436 people. Medicine, dentistry, pediatrics, gynecology, ultrasound, gave them eyeglasses. It's so neat. When they rescue the kids and they go to school for the first time, they can't see the blackboard. You give them glasses. You've changed their lives. Um, this is things that other teams can't go in and do, but there's a door through medicine to get in and work in these areas. Physical therapy, we had a, had these things available. Um, we try, had tried to do PAPS locally. We actually now down there, we bring a pathologist and a cytotechnician. We do a PAP smear with a two-hour turnaround. We do VIA on all of them. We, we have a Copascope down there. This year we found three cancers. We did six cryosurgeries to prevent them and six leaps, which is for more advanced lesions. And so we probably, um, 12 women there, were kept from developing cervical cancer. So I think that's all I want to say. Um, we're running, we can't run longer, so I'm going to offer to stay around if anyone has any questions. But. A lot of lead, need in low-resource countries, a lot that, that can be done. Um, I'm just going to end with this slide. Trafficking in persons doesn't start when the person is kidnapped or forced into trafficking. Um, in fact, sometimes the trafficked person unknowingly is impl- complicit in the initial stages of trafficking simply because they are so desperate and they have to make money to survive. It doesn't start with that, and it also doesn't end when a person is rescued because there is a host of mental and physical damage that remains, and they're still the primary factors that drove them to trafficking to begin with. Micro, you know, need to make money, for example, and if you don't do something to address their skills and do that, they have no choice but to go back. So anywhere from the beginning to the end, and many of the places in between here, there is room for healthcare professionals to be working with trafficked women and children and definitely to bring help. So thank you.